Welcome to Against the Tide, a series of interviews with leaders of disrupted businesses. I'm Anthony Garn. My guest today is Paul Mines, Chief Executive of Biome Technologies PLC. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. About 20 years ago, you and I met because we were working on a transaction in the plastic packaging sector. Over the last 20 years, things have moved on quite a bit, as Biome will show to our listeners. Could you give us a little bit of background on yourself and the journey from perhaps the point at which we met, uh, or even before, through to what you're looking after today? Anthony, I'm an engineer by, by background, and I spent my early years working for some U- large UK corporates, ICI Courtaults. And then when you first bumped into me, I was working for a management buyout at out of Courtaults, which was a large toothpaste tube manufacturing. Um, so I think it's fair to say I spent very much my early years taking oil and oil-derived products and sort of pumping them into the consumer market with it, without really a thought of what happened to them at the end of their working lives as products. The last 14 years, I've spent, first of all, working on developing the technology and then really commercializing the technology around bio-based and biodegradable or compostable plastics. So I guess trying to put right some of the sins of my past as best I could of all that oil I used by using biogenic inputs to make sort of a new generation of plastics, but also with a clear view of how those plastics are disposed of at the end of their lives and what happens to them. So. Yeah, so I, so I don't want to hold myself as a paragon of virtue, but I've certainly changed my tune since those times 20 years ago. Not surprisingly, before our interview today, I spent some time on the Biome website, and there's a very, very excellent which, uh, video which I would encourage anyone of our listeners to have a look at on the Biome Technologies website, which talks about the problems that the planet faces in relation to conventional old world plastics. It's quite appropriate uh, and somewhat a coincidence that today is Earth Day. Paul, could you tell us more about the bioplastics business? I know that you have other businesses within Biome, but I think you focus on that mostly. Uh, we are very much indeed. Um, I, 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 you know, the, the plastics world, you know, the, there are some 350 million tonnes a year of plastics pumped out um, by the oil and plastic producing majors. And as you know, sort of the plastics have become ubiquitous and very useful. Um, And they're low cost, highly functional product. Um, But we've spent very little time effort over the years that that plastics market has developed thinking about the environmental impact of making those plastics and particularly the carbon footprint of them and what happens at the end of them. You know, probably globally, maybe seven or eight percent of those plastics are actually recycled. And, and that and that's seen on that, you know, annual production, despite all our attempts to recycle, you know, those 350, 400 million tons are pumped out each year. You know, and I think you know very much of biome, we're on a mission to sort of break that cycle um, by making materials that have a much better um, origin by using biogenic, you know, that's making them from plants and trees, um, and so that they, we capture carbon as we make the materials. And then 
you know, actually at the end of their life, our particular focus, although these materials can be recycled and they can be, you know, used in persistent plastics, our particular focus is on making materials that compost. So you know, they help take particularly food waste because uh, many of our pro products and packaging are items that are covered in food. And what, what we want to do is make sure that food waste gets to compost and back to the soil um, rather than into incinerators or landfill. So I guess it's a twin track approach of sort of a, a good beginning of life to our materials and a good end to life. And, I, and I've really seen, you know, just, we've been doing this for some 14 years, and then, but in the last three, four, we've really seen the appetite for our products start to take off, which is really exciting to see. And, and, and that's why we sort of made the video you described, Anthony, so people can start to understand what we do, why we do it, and why it's important. In the video, you use the example of a coffee pod. Is the functionality of your product for that market comparable to the oil-based version? Yeah, absolutely for a time. So in the products we make for the coffee market, which is one of our fast growing markets, you know, we can assure the, materi the materials provide a functionality that gives the coffee pod a shelf life that's appropriate. And then the materials can survive the brewing process, et cetera. But then the key part of it is then and once you've they've, they've provided that function, then provided you put them in the, the right environment, which composting, which means with some water, some heat, some bugs, some soil, um, they then effectively return to carbon dioxide and water and a few minerals within a three month period. And that's what there's a battery of tests we have to do around our products to assure that that happens. But that's where the functionality departs from the sort of classic oil-based persistent product. Um, you know, this is not um, some pixie dust. It's not some greenwash claim. These materials actually degrade in the presence of the organisms you find in a compost heap. And they are designed, you know, the molecular structure of them is designed so that organisms can get in and effectively eat them and use the carbon in our coffee pods for their own metabolism. So, you know, it's a truly biological process and there's no residual toxins exactly in the material afterwards. And then, of course, the compost that's generated from that coffee pod that's a mixture of plastic and coffee and biodegraded helps enrich the compost that then goes back into the land to grow the next, you know, the next crop, the next season. The coffee pod that we were discussing obviously is a rigid plastic and there are different types of plastic and different end uses. Does your material extend to more conventional consumer goods? You're right. The sort of plastics world is sort of split into soft and hard or rigid and flexible. I think there's a broad set of uses that are sort of food related. Some of our materials are used in more persistent applications, i.e. when you want the material to be there for a long time, and there we don't actually make them to be compostable or biodegradable. There, the sort of prime reason they're bought is because they're bio-based and the customer is looking for a sort of a story whereby they can say, look, this is biogenic input, this is a low carbon input. So yes, I, but our, you know, we don't extend our ambition to parts in cars and things yet for for now, you know, I see our sweet spot being really around that consumer branded 
um, materials that are going into the sort of packaging supply train. Um, there are other applications that are quite important for these materials, one of which there's an accompanying video on web our website explaining this, which is around the kind of plastic protectors that go around trees when you plant a small tree and you want to protect it from deer and mice and rabbits. Um, but at the moment, tens of thousands of those tree guards are left in the environment to, and, the, and there those guards are made from persistent polypropylene, often plastics. Um, whereas we've got a version now which biodegrades over time um, and just returns that tree protector to the soil. So as well as those sort of consumer facing applications, we've also got professional applications, particularly in the agriculture area that we think will be important in the next few years. Just sticking with that coffee theme for a few minutes more, one of the things that I sort of think must be contributing hugely to that lake of plastic out in the sea is the millions and millions of tops to the takeaway coffee cups that uh, that we all consume. They're ubiquitous. And the question really is, is why why can't those coffee lids be made with your material and therefore not contribute to uh, the terrible negative impact environmentally that perhaps they do? Or, or am I, well, is it is it functional? Could you do that? Or am I barking up the wrong tree here? I think it is an, it's a really interesting area, that sort of food on the go and whether some of those products should be compostable. And certainly in the case of the coffee cup lid you describe, I think it's an area that's ripe for conversion to compostables. And indeed, that some of the sort of niche brands have made attempts to do so and, and some are in the market. I, I think the what you're asking actually sort of goes to one of the sort of conundrums around compostable and bio-based bioplastics at the moment is that the price is um, significantly higher than oil-based materials. Now, one might argue in the final product, it's a small amount. I think in the when, when we've done calculations on your coffee lid example, it takes the price of a manufactured lid from 0.7 of a P to 1.2, 1.3 P in the sort of total cost of a large brand coffee of three pounds, let's say. So, but when you add that up across the, you know, a large brands, European or North American position, that comes to quite a lot of money. And whereas we find both in the sort of coffee and other markets at the moment, the sort of the niche um, or large niche, let's say brands with a strong ethical drive, owner managed, family office backed, that kind of thing are really keen to differentiate their products. What we often find is with the large majors, they, they're just not ready to make that step yet of from the oil-based cheaper version to what we would claim and assert would be a more ethical solution to their materials. Um, I think it will come and certainly that pressure has accelerated in the last few years. I wanted to move on to the discussion of ESG as a whole with you. But before we do that, just to stick still with this whole concept of the environmentally friendly coffee lid, it feels to me when I talk to chief executives that they actually say it's the consumer that drives the decision to do that. And I think very few people would push back on paying a fraction more and hopefully some of the manufacturers taking maybe just a fraction less on that particular point to solve this particular problem. 
equally, the investors in those companies, so the shareholders, the pension plans, all the money that actually is the people's money, if you want, funding different businesses, they also believe very strongly in some of these things. So I sincerely hope that the change will happen sooner than you think. And and of course, anyone who is listening to this podcast, you know exactly where to go to try and solve that particular problem. So having finished with that one, just moving on to ESG as a whole, how do you look at it from, from your perspective? Clearly, your business is all about doing good things in the right sort of way. Absolutely. And I think to some degree, we feel we've been working out with a strong ESG basis for the 14 years we've been running and developing the business. And and others are perhaps coming to the party now, which is absolutely a good thing. But but I think standards are really important within this. And otherwise, I think there's a real risk that the ESG branding becomes a descriptor that no one really trusts or believes in and and, and there so certainly in our own case we've signed up for sort of the race to zero which is very much about sort of science-based targets and publicly putting into the public domain very clear plans and numerical analysis of what you do you know and in terms of coming to that we know we can do it because in our own sort of product design area you know before we put a new product on the market, we thoroughly assessed it from a ESG point of view as well. So actually having the opportunity to put that out there and display it and for other, or both our investors to see and for our customers to see is, is really important. So we're really pleased to do that during uh, 2021 as well. You're a public company on the London Stock Exchange, as I said earlier. So please don't go too far uh, in terms of breaking any rules in, in talking about some of the items I'm going to raise now. But if you look at your investors, number one, they're investing in a business which has all sorts of good, really beautiful things that are happening. But is that at the expense of a return? And are they expecting to be able to get both out of it? I think that's a really interesting question. And so I, I, th- I think it's a it's a bit of both. Um I think certainly you know, we've had during our sort of development phase, if you like, we've had a very supportive set of um, high net worth investors um, who've provided what you might call some sort of patient capital while we've built the technology base of the business. And I think they, they are individuals who are clearly looking for a return but also the sort of ethical dimension has been important to them. You know, and I think you know, what's kept them going through some of our perhaps more challenging years while we were waiting for the market to turn has been that knowledge they were doing the right thing as well as a return may come. You know, as, as we've grown in the last two or three years and, brought, and broadened the shareholder base, I, I think there's a mixture coming on board. You know, there are some that are seeing this as an opportunity for joining a fast-growing business and enjoying the returns from that. And there are others who quite clearly say they want that, but also their the family offices or the high net worth they're representing are also after positioning themselves ethically appropriately as well. So, you know, I, and I, you know, I, I think both of those are support, given we know at the core of what we're doing is of a high ESG standard anyway. You know, I, I'm 
I welcome all of those investors in terms of to support the growth and development of the of the business. Paul, you mentioned earlier that you're a fast growing business, and indeed the numbers show it very clearly in the bioplastics growth in terms of um, volume and sales, percentage wise at least. And you spent a huge amount of time investing in this and dealt with the patience and the challenges of getting it right to follow the opportunity. And when we talked about the plastics world, which is, of course, enormous, it seems to me that the opportunity must be immense. And some of the elements that you talked about before in terms of being more expensive than other oil-based plastics used in a more commoditized way, of course, presumably that reduces as volumes increase for you. I think it does. You know, I, I think the... Uh we haven't reached yet an economic tipping point that is a dramatic cliff change. You know, I, I think if you if you look at a parallel to something like the solar PV market, where for, for many, many years that it was thought that solar panels were you know, an expensive novelty that would only be supported by government intervention. I still feel we're, you know, though we don't have any government intervention, I still feel we're in that those early years of bioplastics where um, we need to sort of work on the niche applications but it but over time this will gain momentum I, I now whether that momentum to truly large-scale deployment which I think is it will come you know it, whether that's three five or ten years I I can't tell you Anthony at this point and um, I'd, I'd like to know but but um, you know, what what I am clear about is it is a path that is inevitable. You know, what I don't underestimate is, is the sort of the power of big oil, you know, and the, the whole machine that we've built very effectively as humanity to deliver very low cost plastics. And there's, you know, and the large scale plastics business has had, you know, don't forget I was part of it, you know, we had 60, 70 years since the end of the Second World War to really refine and improve it. You know, and we're only sort of 10 years in, really, to the bioplastics revolution. Um, but there's a hell of a lot to go for. Clearly, everybody knows that the world is a very different place now than it was just a few short years ago. And it's not just about the pandemic. It's obviously about climate change and awareness of others and a thought, a thought pattern which really goes much further forward. Um, not just to our children, but our grandchildren and their children. In fact, the sustainability um, generally. And some of the oil majors that you talked about before are also changing their long-term strategies. How has the pandemic impacted on your business? I mean, as you sort of noted earlier, you know, our, our um, results from last year were a sort of 65% increase in our bioplastics business despite the pandemic. And you know, those who follow us um, on the stock market will see that there's there are forecasts out there suggesting sort of 40% plus growth for this year as well. So, you know, I, I, it's always difficult to tell whether what might have been, but what's clear is that um, you know, throughout coronavirus uh, last year, the, the demand for our products continued and continued to grow. And, you know, what I'm delighted to have is not just the sort of customer set we have who we're growing with but at the moment we've got an unprecedented amount of, sort of new inquiries trials going on so despite the economic and social challenges of the pandemic 
uh, you know, that, if you want to call it ESG or that desire to do something better with plastics has continued. And I'm, I'm delighted by that, really, and, and really working to support that. I'm sure that you are unique in many, many ways, but I presume that there are other people looking at bioplastics alongside you. Do they have the same sort of growth pattern and aspirations that you have? Yes. I mean, I, I, I've sort of got data for 2019, 2020 on that, where other bioplastics companies were growing at similar kinds of um, rates. So this isn't just biome, though we like to think we have our own particular twist and, and market niche on it. But um, no, no, it, it's, it's, it's certainly a broader it's broader than just bio. This is a train that left the station, I, I think, particularly after the sort of the Blue Planet 2 of David Attenborough and that you know, real awakening to the risks around plastic waste, particularly. And now it's being re reinforced by the growing concern about climate change and how we're going as a humanity, we're going to resolve that. So, you know, we've got those two drivers of how we deal with our waste, versus how do we produce goods in a more environmentally acceptable ma manner. And I, I think both of those are fundamental drivers that aren't going to go away anytime soon. I chose to name this podcast series Against the Tide because it feels to me that if you're doing something new, then typically you're pushing water uphill because you have to drive adoption, you have to solve so many problems. It's like a startup, even if it's not a startup. And I accept, of course, that Biome is not a startup, but it is doing something new. So the CEOs, the leaders of those businesses, really have to work hard to push against the tide. Just giving you this preamble also, because what I often ask people is around what they think, if they had a magic wand, would make a huge difference to the, the timeline, to the adoption curve for their particular business. You can choose as many items as you want, truthfully, but is there something specific that you would have thought would help you hugely with the biome journey? First of all, I very much agree for, I guess, 10 of the 14 years I've been in post here and developing it. It has been, it's felt like we've been swimming against the tide. I, I think the last three or four years, not at all. You know, it think, to stretch the analogy, I, I, I feel we're in some tidal rip current really accelerating which is great to feel now now how can we tell turn that rip current into a huge river of of, of interest I, I i think the the reason that we're getting that interest is consumers voting with their feet or their wallets so i would just continue to ask consumers when they look at products in the supermarket, online, whatever, to make ethical choices because, you know, and, and that will encourage the, the, the brands, the fast moving consumer good brands and their suppliers to get their supply chains in place. You know, and I think if you, if the consumers vote with their feet or wallets, the brands will follow and, and government will follow and the, the press will follow. So, so I think it's about every individual doing their bit, which, I know in the sort of climate con change context, people think that they're too small to make a difference. I, I disagree with that. I, I think particularly around plastics, they can make a difference by choosing 
less plastic, choosing materials that can be recyclable, and choosing bio-based and compostable materials. And 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 that that and I think they'll do that. And there's no evidence that consumers don't. In fact, there's lots of evidence that consumers very much buy into that. And so, my magic wand would be encouraging them to do continue to do that, Anthony. You already know that I am a huge admirer of what you and your team at Biome have achieved over the years. And I sincerely hope that those consumers will be voting with their feet. You don't have to swim against the tide ever again. And that this very, very important evolution in the plastics industry accelerates and becomes commonplace. Thank you very much for joining us today. Anthony, thank you very much indeed.